You are most welcome to this talk, and I'm so pleased to welcome Dr. Claire Craig to the talk today. Claire, welcome and thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me, John. It's good to see you. Me too. Now, Claire, Claire Dr. Claire Craig, Craig medical doctor, uh, you, you were a consultant pathologist for a while in the NHS, a diagnostic pathologist, a fellow of the Royal College of Pathologists, a medical researcher, researcher in the uh, clinical data and cancer arm of the 100,000 Genome Project for a while, Claire. You worked on that. Fascinating. Medical author, speaker, and generally a campaigner for good things. So um, I want to do a quick plug, if you don't mind, Claire, to begin with. This is, this is your book here, Expired, uh, The Untold Covid Story. And <laughs> when I read this, Honestly, it was just like scales falling from my eyes. You know, everything just made sense. And I thought, why didn't I see that earlier? You know, you know, Claire's got it all worked out here. So um, and we'll put a link, of course, to make sure you avail yourself of a copy. And completely readable, not in medical jargonese. Um, really, really, really interesting Thank you. background material. Thank you. I'm glad it worked. Um, yeah, it, it's <laughs> books are one heck of a lot of work. I. I've decided never to write any more, <laughs> but I know you're working on another one. Oh, yeah, we might yeah. give a spoiler. We might give a spoiler on that on that later on. Um, so, first question, Claire, really is, you know, we heard about this. I suppose we first heard about this late, you know, 2019, mm -hmm. and um, we sort of were given an an official narrative, really, of uh, of what happened, what was going on. Um, how did your views on the pandemic evolve during 2020, the first year of the pandemic? Yeah, well, so at the very outset, I was, I think, you know, going along with the crowds. I was absolutely paying attention to what was happening and I was scared by what was happening. And um, even when things started to sort of, you know, we started to get a bit more information. We had the Diamond Princess situation. So I started to be a bit less scared for me as an individual, but I was still scared for, you know, the older people that I loved and, and the, the society as a whole and the NHS might collapse. All of that story was still a concern to me. And really that carried on right up until the summertime. So it wasn't until summer 2020 when, you know, the, the, the spring wave had ended and we were still getting this peculiar trickle of cases and deaths every day being reported as if it was all the same as what had gone before. And I was sort of questioning that, but not able to really look into it because I had four children and it was summer holidays. Um, and so it wasn't until they went back to school that I thought, right, I'm gonna dig out some data on this because I want to understand it better. And the question I had was, was this trickle of cases just testing errors? Because, you know, as a diagnostic testing expert, that's always a risk you've got with medical testing. You know, you might overdiagnose or underdiagnose, and you've always got to try and get that balance right. And this looked like overdiagnoses. And, you know, you can say that, but you need to prove it. You can't just sort of make that claim. And I thought, well, there, there will be ways to prove it because what happened in spring 2020 um, was kind of characteristic. You know, there were certain people who were more at risk. So you had um, men died more than women and um, pe black people were more at risk of being an ICU than white people. And, you know, there were sort of all these different signals that were risk factors for COVID deaths and COVID hospitalizations that you could pick out and say, well, does it still look like that now? 
And so in the summertime, it didn't anymore. You know, the mm. summer it was equal numbers of men and women. And, you know, that the pattern had changed. And mm. so even if there were some genuine COVID, you know, knocking around, which is impossible, the, the bigger picture story at that time was that we were over-diagnosing it. And so having shown that, I thought, well, what do I do about this? Because, you know, I think this is important and, and I don't know how to or who to tell or how to do something. You know, I don't want to just have it ignored. And I took advice from Carl Hennigan, who's the a director of the Centre of Evidence-Based Medicine in Oxford, who I was actually at medical school with. And I hadn't been in touch with him for 20 years, but, you know, I knew him. And I um, asked him what I should do. And he said, well, just write a blog and say it you know, put it out there and, and then people will know it's been said and, it, and, and, you know, if it's in the public domain, then it can't be ignored in the same way. So I, I reluctantly took a photograph and set up a social media thing, which all of that stuff I hate, but I did it and put my name on it and put my face on it and said, I think we've got a problem here. And I was anticipating one of two responses rather naively. I thought either I'm going to be told, well, you know, you're wrong, we've looked at this, this is actually what's going on and here's why. Or they'd say, oh, that's interesting, we hadn't seen that, we'll see what we can do about it. And I genuinely thought those were the two outcomes. Mm -hmm. And that's not what happened, I just got attacked. Um, and, and then also introduced to all sorts of other experts who had had a similar experience when they'd raised a concern, um, which sort of opened my eyes a little bit to there might be more to this than just my little, my little concern. And so I started reading about it all in much more depth and learning about things that I'd been oblivious about that happened in spring. Mm -hmm. So being, having to, be, be, being brought up in, in a life, in a, in a culture, where it was allowed to give uh, a point of view and to give some counter argument and to discuss and, and to work through the, the dialectic of scientific development. This is how science works. You know, we, we, we discuss, we d debate, all, all that, all that seem to be, be gone. You know, your ideas weren't scientifically refuted or scientifically confirmed. It was rather that you were attacked personally. There seems to have been this huge, um, what I can only call a massive cultural change, really. Yeah, I mean, and I think that there was probably, I mean, I don't know exactly what was behind it. I don't know who these people were, um, but there have been times along the way when it's clear that some of the people who've been causing trouble and attacking people and, you know, trying to discredit them have been funded by outside funders, you know, so it's not just individuals who've got a chip on their shoulder. I think sometimes it's that, but sometimes there's more to it than that. And, and, you know, that's just really, really telling. And obviously there's no way to like have a civil society. It's no way to do science and, you know, it's no way to do politics. Like you have to actually work on the evidence and, and argue the cases with facts and if you are immediately having to go for for personal attacks it's because you haven't got an argument you know if you if you've got the truth on your side then you just expose it and there's something quite interesting that i've learned along this way around the difference between a truth and and a lie and so in, in under a lie i'd include you know misinterpretations and mistakes and whatever else and obviously I, i've made mistakes along the way when i make a mistake it goes everywhere. Everybody wants to share it. They want to use it to discredit me. They want to use it so they can show how clever they are because they can show that I was wrong. But most of the things I've said have not been like that. They have been inconvenient truths. And when you say an inconvenient truth, that doesn't happen, you just get attacked. Mm -hmm. 
And I don't want to dwell on this, but I've had, you know, quite serious physical threats from untraceable emails and, and, and things like that. Um, you know, this is something there's a real concerted effort against what I would call open discussion. And anyway, um, let's get on to some really interesting material from your book. Now, you, you've got um, a series of, of beliefs, uh, 12, 12 beliefs. Um, and let's just say these are open for discussion. Mm -hmm. um, now, the, the first belief, belief one, um, in the, this is the first part of, of, of your book. Um, COVID only spreads through close contact. Yes, that's quite carefully worded. <laughs> I'm sure it is. Please tell us what you mean, Claire. So, so the story that we were told from the outset was that, you know, if you're up close with somebody that has COVID, you're at risk of catching it from them. And, and the, the belief was that people would be um, almost spitting it in your face. That was the idea, wasn't it? There were droplets coming out of your nose and your mouth as you talked that would be directed at somebody's face and that that is how it would spread. And um, I said only because I think it can spread like that, right? Sure. You know, close contact can be the problem. But when you actually dig into the story behind where this belief comes from it's really interesting so some people stop at the point where they say it was some school project in america by this girl who said that if you had social distancing you'd be able to you know reduce epidemiological spread this was some you know literally a science project at school but that's not where it really came from where it really came from was going way back to 1910 so there was a public health official who worked in rhode island and frankly, I mean, I, I, I don't want to completely denigrate this man. I think he did good things, but he also did a few things that we're still having the hangover of. He was a bit of a germaphobe. You know, when you read his book, he his, his talks about how people turn the pages when they've licked their finger and then he has to touch that page. And then he has to hold the handle in the trolley cart and other people have been touching it. And there's just bits of other people's saliva everywhere he looks. And he, so, you know, he's a bit of a character in that way. And, and he seems to be a bit evangelical about his obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, but what he knew, um, based on evidence, was that people in hospitals in infectious disease wards spread, that the disease spread was less when you separated the beds a bit. So, you know, that he, he sort of knew this and he was really evangelical about it and wanted to make a difference. And it may well be that he did make a difference. But he felt that people weren't listening to him because they still believed that spread could occur through the air. And so this was happening in 1910 now. So we're kind of, we're more than 50 years after germ theory had been accepted as a theory. And that was the, you know, the, the result of a, a difficult scientific debate that became quite heavily politicized mm. between germ theory versus miasma theory. So miasma theory is that theory that bad smells spread disease through the air and so it you know once they showed that actually it was you know these germs then that theory was was you know shot down but because it was such a politicized debate um the germ theorists were suppressed with their ideas and they had to fight and fight for years to be believed and then when they were believed they seemed to sort of bring in 
you know, it sort of became more extreme. And so when they won, they're like, right, this is it. It's germ theory. All of that miasma stuff is completely wrong because you didn't let us speak. So you must have been wrong about everything. <laughs> and so when you get into a situation where things are so polarized like that, obviously you lose all the nuance. And, and, and you know, and so th this guy was also losing the nuance. It cannot be miasma theory. He had this phrase of sewer gas bogey. He wanted to rid the world of this fear of sewer gas being the thing that was spreading disease. So he and, and what he then did was he came up with ideas out of thin air. So his idea out of thin air was that it was mouth spray that was a spread of infection and it would fall within um, six foot of somebody. So he was the originator of that idea of spread through droplets with that distance. And it wasn't evidence based. And the thing is that when you read his book, he's actually pretty sound. And he ends the book saying, you know, I've made a lot of assumptions here. I've made sweeping statements. I've sort of bundled all the infectious diseases in as one almost. And obviously, we've got tons more to learn about this. And, you know, things will evolve as they go along. And he also sort of has a section on influenza where he sort of, you know, he struggles with that one a bit, doesn't really fit his model the way the others do. So, you know, I actually respect him a lot. And so we can't really put the blame on him when a, more than 100 years later. So this is Dr. Kaplan, is it? Yeah, this is Charles Chapin. Yeah, we haven't done the work in the meantime, you know, and so it's not on him. It's on us. Right. He oh. came up with a hypothesis and nobody's really shot it down. And, and actually, that's not true. People have shot this down, but they've always been ignored. So physicists who would look at um, aerosols and droplets and how they move through the air had said for a long time, we've got a problem here, guys, because this mouth spray is on a trajectory. It's coming out, but it's immediately under the influence of gravity. And so if you're standing opposite somebody, the chance of it hitting a mucosal membrane, like an eye, nostril or mouth, is not, it's just minuscule. It's just not going to happen. And and, you know, we know that because we feel it when it when it does happen. It's very, very rare. And that's not how this could possibly be spreading. Um, and there were other um, physicists who did this work who sort of started off working in air pollution and then got interested in, you know, epidemiology and how viruses spread, who were trying to raise the alert from early in 2020, saying, look, you've got this wrong. So they, you know, they were sort of absolutely baffled that the epidemiology community had this idea that anything infectious was falling to the ground as if, you know, as if it was incredibly heavy and was just going to drop when they knew that the size of the particles that viruses are in is teeny tiny. And they're so tiny that they do something that's sort of slightly mind blowing. So if you get really high resolution photography, you can see that anything that is visible to the naked eye, even the tiniest, tiniest thing visible to the naked eye is immediately under the effect of gravity. So it falls. But just anything just below what's visible to the naked eye doesn't do that. It's sort of mind blowing, but it doesn't do that because as soon as it's out of your nose and your mouth, it starts to rapidly evaporate and becomes significantly smaller. And it's also in the warm air from our body. And so it goes up. So it's not falling to the ground at all. It's going up and it's lingering in the air. And so the kind of image I have of it is like Pigpen from Charlie Brown, where people are surrounded by this cloud of aerosols that they're producing all of the time. And they're being left behind as they walk down the street. And it's and it then can move through the air 
from place to place. And so, you know, this what that means is that somebody who's very sick at home and producing literally millions of virus particles and, you know, tens of millions overnight, that that material will get into the general air. And if it's at night time, there is no UV light around to do anything about it, it will move to their neighbours. And, and we've seen that happen with SARS-1. So there was a nice study in SARS-1 of an apartment block in Hong Kong, where there were six tower blocks arranged in a sort of hexagon arrangement. And um, uh, physicists predicted, based on people who are infected in the ground floor flats of one block, who was going to be infected next in the upstairs flats of blocks in the wind direction. And they got it right, because that's how it spread. It's so interesting for the development of, of, of just scientific ideas. So th this, this miasma idea where things like spread through the air, so you could smell putrid smells mm -hmm. um, 100 yards away. Uh, and the disease smells, the disease spreads in these putrid smells, when of course we know it doesn't. This is, this is what germ theory has taken over. But from that idea, we had this stereotypical idea of droplet infection. I mean, that's what we call it, these droplets, and they just they drop out. And the idea that disease could spread through the air had been chucked out in the sort of 1880s or whatever it was with Louis Pasteur and Philippe mm -hmm. Semmelweis. Uh, th therefore, that can't possibly happen. But... The physicists tell us about these aerosol particles. Yes, yes. But they are spreading through the air. Yes. So the miasma theory wasn't completely wrong in that sense. No, it we've was, gone from it wasn't we've gone to the opposite. Wrong. Yeah, that's right. So you mm. know, I think the fact it was a smell was wrong. It was wrong. It wasn't a smell. But Correct. the idea that therefore nothing could ever travel through the air is also wrong. And and once you've understood this principle, all sorts of things start to fall into place. So you start to understand why every region at the same time has got a problem. You know, this didn't, this is not what the modelling showed. The modelling showed it would start in sort of focal areas, largely cities, but they, they couldn't predict where the, it would begin, and it would spread out to more remote regions mm -hmm. over time. And they, the modelling was suggesting that would take, you know, weeks and weeks, like 14 weeks to reach a peak in every point yeah. of the country. Now, that, that is nothing like what happened in the real world anywhere. In the real world, it was on, switched on almost immediately across huge areas. But if you look across continents, you can see sort of time differences as it moved across. So, for instance, in spring 2020, Eastern Europe didn't have a problem as if it had yeah. perhaps either already gone or, or that you know their kind of winter virus season was over and then it spread um from italy to us in sweden to you know it kind of went slightly west um and then in the following year we had a much earlier autumn january first covid winter nothing in spring and it was eastern europe that was hit in the spring so it was starting to move in the opposite direction across the continent so, you know, when you're seeing it as being spread in aerosols through the air, it starts to make sense. And, and one of the other things the modelers had set out as a claim was that the peak would be in spring 2020. They reckoned the peak would be in July. That was what they were modeling. They thought everyone was susceptible. It would carry on spreading and spreading and spreading. It would peak in July and that their interventions would squash the curve slow the spread and delay uh -huh. that peak to after July. Well, it peaked in April. 
it peaked in April. And, and then when they reduced the restrictions, the modeler said, oh, we'll have a rebound. Every time we relax, there's going to be a rebound and we're going to have to keep intervening to keep it under control. There was no rebound. It peaked and then it went away and then it comes back in a seasonal manner subsequently. So many fascinating things there again, Claire. The, the, the sheer, sheer human arrogance, really, that, yeah. that we can control a virus, which are these forces of nature. Um, I mean, viruses, we need them for the ecosystem, of course, but in some cases they, be, they go wrong and become pathological. But, you know, human beings, we are so clever, we, could, we, we can sort this out. You know, the, 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 the arrogance of that is quite in, incredible. And th this simplistic idea that, to put it quite crudely, A slobbers on B, who slobbers on C, who slobbers on D. <laughs> um, simplistic, beyond description, and, and as we've said, an antithesis against this yeah. miasma theory. And, and we already, we had evidence very early on that that wasn't the case, you yeah. know. So the, if you remember the stories of the, the choir rehearsals and the... Yeah. And yeah. the restaurants with the air conditioning and the buses, yeah. you know, it was clearly not just people who were in the very close vicinity face to face with people. And yet that was all just ignored and suppressed. And the people who were saying it spreads through aerosols were called misinformation spreaders by the WHO. So, you, you know, it's all part of a pattern, really, isn't it? This is this is airborne <laughs> as in paratroopers. Yeah. To, to, to misquote ahead of an international or, or organization and then we have these these fascinating ideas that don't quite fit in with the theory so um i mean i've i've had emails from people that are really displeased that they've got the disease i remember one from someone who's in the outback and said oh, i'm in the outback i went into town once two weeks ago and, and now now i've got the virus you know what, what's, what's this about you know the the, the, the they thought they shouldn't have it and we have these weird ideas of, uh, I think there's an episode of uh, people on the British Antarctic survey got an infection when, when they shouldn't uh, get infections. And um, pe people who've been on ships at sea and all of a That's sudden right. the, the infection seems to, to come along. So the, the, the way, another way science works is we look for the exception, surely. We should look for the exception and say, look, this doesn't work in that case. Therefore, does this count? To cast doubt on the whole theory on on the whole way of thinking and that just doesn't seem to have been done no um, i completely agree and i think i think those are important stories and i think you know people sort of dismiss them because i don't know there are small numbers of people involved in those stories but they they do you know they do prove that the conventional theory is not right at least not right in every case you know there, there's a there are exceptions where you have these very odd stories so you know the, you're talking about that argentinian fishing vessel which was a week mm. was at sea for five weeks and then had an outbreak and then the mm. the british antarctic survey they had tested and isolated and flown to um argentina and tested and isolated and stayed in a hotel just them and went to the base and then we had an outbreak anyway and so you know that that does suggest that there's more to this story than the conventional story of you've got the lurgy and you're going to give it to me um and and the, i think the other part sort of sliding onto belief two i think but the the other critical point of the that was a mistake was thinking everybody was susceptible mm. and, and that's a belief that sort of somehow still seems to hold um, and that was the belief that leads to this sort of tsunami model where it keeps going and going and going until everybody's yeah, yeah. caught it. 
And that happened nowhere at any point. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. we've seen so many COVID waves. It's very predictable how long it takes before they peak naturally. We know that mm. from evidence everywhere. Um, and so, and this is really, really important because I suppose at a stretch, if you pretended this virus was something we knew nothing about, you could say we didn't know that until that had happened. But it's not something we knew nothing about. We knew it's the coronavirus. And we knew that they are very seasonal and they do have these um, sometimes quite you know, dramatic surges before they yeah. go away again. So we did know that. And we don't know as much about coronaviruses as we do about influenza. But influenza viruses are you know, also respiratory viruses who, which are very seasonal. So we could have thought, well, what do we know about influenza? Mm-hmm. And what we knew about that is that um, they are only about 5 to 15% are susceptible to any sort of influenza mm-hmm. variant, as it were. Um, And if you look at papers from before this period where people were talking about what would happen if we had an influenza, you know, that was mutated and that was unfamiliar and, you know, what would the outcome be? In fact, there was one that was was written about influenza that had been a lab leak, a sort of gain of function influenza. What would happen? And the the basis of that thesis was, well, maximum 15 percent are going to be susceptible. Well, that's a very sound reasoning. So why on earth were people talking about it being 85%? You know, this is an extraordinary difference, really extraordinary. And and, and there is a problem we have that modelers, um, first of all, their entire career is about this sort of event. So they want to spin it out and exaggerate. You know, the more, the worse they can make it, the better it is for them. They become the heroes, as it were. So they've got all the wrong motivations. And on top of that, if they say 85% are going to be susceptible and they've got it wrong, there doesn't seem to be any consequence for them. If they said, oh, don't worry about this, nobody's susceptible, that's when they have a consequence because they've undercalled it. So they have mm-hmm. this perverse incentive to always be massively overcalling it. And it's the politicians who take the flack for overreacting, but they didn't. the politicians didn't seem to have the um, common sense, frankly, to question these people. And and I think that's really sad. It's, it's almost as if they were being bamboozled with computer models, when actually the question was very, very simple. Anybody could have an opinion on how many people are going to get it, how many people are going to die of it. It's two numbers. You don't need a computer model. That's a very simple back of the envelope sum. And so you can then, as a politician, interrogate those two questions. But nobody mm-hmm. really did. The modelling disasters in the pandemic, we could spend a long time talking about that. Assumptions based on essentially no information at all, uh, fed to uh, politicians with essentially no background science at all, who were not equipped to ask the sort of scientific questions uh, that that would have interrogated this data or these this apparent data in an analytical format. So what we're saying here, just to clarify the science, Claire, is that in any one wave, let, let's take the Wuhan wave, the original virus, whatever we want to call that. Um, what, what we're saying is only a, a small number of the population would actually be susceptible to becoming infected and getting sick with that virus. Is, is that what we're with that particular form of the virus? Is that what we're saying? Yeah, absolutely. That's what we're saying, that 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 if you look um 
There's something slightly odd about what happens that nobody really can explain. And I think that's been part of the problem is nobody willing to talk about things we can't explain, you know, pretending there's no doubt in the situation. Mm. So one of the things we can't explain is peak deaths are always in January, right? Respiratory virus peak deaths always happen in January. Now, if viral spread was to do with how we're interacting with each other, that, that wouldn't be the case. It would, it would come and go more, much more randomly and it wouldn't be predictably always in January. Now, it isn't only always in January. You know, the other peaks are predictable as well. So um, if there is an autumn wave, which I, we have had every time, mm. then you see the peak deaths at the end of October, beginning yeah. of November. If you have a spring one, you see peak deaths in early April. And if there's a summer one, peak deaths are in July. We haven't seen peak deaths that are falling outside of that pattern. So if you can see that pattern, then you'll say, well, why is it that it's always going to be in falling in November, as we've just seen, before rising in December? Like every single yeah. year it has fallen in November before it rises in December. So that that is tricky because if you try and model it on anything to do with viral spread as we know it, that doesn't fall out. And so, But if you think about it as being human susceptibility... Yeah. then you get that predictable pattern. So we've got something causing a wave of susceptibility at certain times of the year with predictable peaks, and we can't explain what it is. So something causes a fraction of the population to become susceptible, and whatever variant is around at the time is the one that will be going with that. And that's why the peaks are predictable. And the reason I say that, because that is quite a, a sort of mind-blowing way to think about it compared with what people normally think. But one of the points of evidence to support that is this. If you looked at people who are in hospital, you've got two types of people in hospital. You've got the ones who are, had COVID, got sick, and came through A&E. So they're the sort of proper COVID admissions from the community. And then you have people who are in hospital for other reasons yeah. who catch it in hospital. Now the conventional story would mean that you had a peak of admissions from the community first, and then it spreads in the hospital and you have your, inc your incubation period and then you get peak, oh, we've got these patients in hospital catching it now. So your um, hospital cases would be after peak admissions. But what actually happens is that the cases in hospital peak at the same time as they peak in the community before the admissions. So the cases are already falling in hospital before you've got peak virus in the hospital. So that suggests there's a susceptibility thing going on in the community that's also affecting all the hospital patients. And of course, hospital patients are sick, so their immune systems are already struggling. And so their, their percentage of people in the hospital environment that are going to end up positive is going to be higher than in a community environment. But the timing of it is the same. So interesting. So there's something about the time of the year, the ecosystem of the planet that we live in, us as human beings and all the multiple factors that influence our susceptibility to the virus, interacting with the innate biology of the virus in its ecosystem. That means that this is highly seasonal. Yes. And, and the cases tend to move uh, as, 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 a, as a wave, almost like pieces of... Um, pieces of wood drifting down a river or something they're all moving kind of kind of moving together 
Yeah, and um, I mean, it, that's true, and it's just, it's complicated. You know, that's the point. There's a lot of factors at play that we can't pretend to understand. And pretending to understand it has just made everyone look stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, and one, one lovely analogy that I quite like is to say it's a bit like tomato blight, where, you know, everything's fine in your allotment, it's all going well, and then overnight, they're all gone. They've all just, like, the conditions are such in the environment that suddenly this fungus that was around yeah. gets the opportunity to just take off and all the tomatoes are gone. Um, and I think if you understand it that way, you can also understand why some of these periods, like spring 2021 here, you don't see a wave. And, and obviously that was attributed at the time to vaccine success, but it was the <laughs> same in Portugal and Ireland. I think it was a geographical phenomenon where you just the very westerly part of Europe didn't have a spring 2021 wave and Eastern Europe had it badly yeah. in the reverse of what was seen in 2020. Yeah. So, so any, any one wave, d- d- only about 15% of people are susceptible. So they got, the modelers got the inverse wrong. The modelers were saying it's 85%. Yes. Whereas actually 85% that probably weren't susceptible in any meaningful way. <laughs> exactly the wrong way around. Yeah, most people are it, bystanders, it, really. It's, it's dazzling how wrong they got this. Mm, mm, <laughs> and yet absolutely. the whole policy was yeah. was based on these particular papers from particular individuals who, who happened to breach the lockdown themselves from particular institutions. It's just yes. incredible that so much weight was put on such such tenuous yeah exiguous evidence it's and, mind-blowing and worse that it wasn't revised that yeah. that's the worst crime okay make a mistake we all yeah. make mistakes right but at what point did they say oh look now we've got some actual evidence of how it actually behaves in the real world let's revise this and they and they failed to do that which is just catastrophic yeah. i think one of the one of the things that people haven't talked about much at all which is very very telling is this measure called the secondary attack rate. So the secondary attack rate is a measure of how many people in a household will catch COVID when somebody in the house has got it. And you can see in the literature, you see huge variation in the claims on this. And that's largely because a lot of people don't take the care to ensure that they're not including people who caught it at the same time as each other. So if you've got, we've got six people in our house. So um, when my husband and I were out and caught it, we brought it home and then there was a period and then two of my children were ill. So our secondary attack rate was of the four children, two of them were ill, so it was 50%. But if you look at that over, over the whole population, Public Health England were very careful about how they measured it and wouldn't have included me and my husband in the sum, they got 10%. It was 10% for the Wuhan wave. It was 10% for the Alpha wave. Now, after Alpha, you know, a large number of people vaccinated. And so at that point, you'd think, well, it should have reduced the number who was susceptible. It should be less than 10%. It was 10% for the Delta wave. You know, exactly, it was exactly a, a the same. Pattern. And worse, like the thing that, that really hasn't been talked about is it was 10% for that first Omicron wave. And the thing is that this does not add up because the other data on Omicron from to so the PCR positive say were huge numbers. And the public health data on the number of people that developed antibodies also suggested huge numbers of cases. 
but I don't understand how they came to those numbers if only 10% were susceptible. Like there's something mm -hmm. that doesn't add up. And they stopped publishing that figure subsequently. So from March 2022, we haven't had that figure. So the confusion is that uh, you, you, you and your daughter could have been out, both caught the virus, maybe at different places, but at the same time, compared to the fact that maybe you could have caught it and then passed it on to your daughter. And, the, and the, this, this nuance wasn't really taken into account in the, in, in the calculations of the secondary attack rate. But, oh, so no, it was more the point that same. if my husband and I had gone out and both caught it at the same time, we're both index cases. And so we, we shouldn't be counted in each other's secondary attack rate. That, that was the math. Yeah, got, got, got it. Got it. Got it. This 10 to 15 percent um, susceptibility, Claire, is this consistent with other diseases? How does this compare to influenza, for example? Do we know? Yeah, so for influenza, it's 5 to 15 percent. For measles, it's, um, you know, it, it is something like over 85%, it'll be 90%, you know, so they, that was the model they were using. They were using this model of measles and, and hypothetical scary virus that they do all their modelling on, because that's their career, as I was saying earlier, you know, they, they pitch their work to funders on the basis that they can tell you about scary viruses. So their models are based on this hypothetical, scary thing that doesn't probably exist. Um, because otherwise, who cares? Right, you know, what, what are you going to do about it otherwise? So they the model have becomes up, an irrelevance. Yeah, they have to come up with stories that give them relevance. And the stories that give them relevance are, these things can spread to everybody, they can be lethal, and we can do something about them. You know, you have to have all three for their mm. careers to be relevant. I mean, I'm not a virologist, but I certainly know that the coronaviruses and the measles viruses are completely, utterly different yes. types, yes. Of, uh, types of infection. I think probably in our culture as well, we have ideas of plague. Um, certainly I was brought up with, with ideas of plague, 1348, the Black Death, 1666. You know, we have this sort of, culture in our in our background this underlying fear and of course in 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 the medical world we've i've been teaching about 1918 pandemic for for for, for decades and um i guess we were sort of expecting it to fall into that i think yeah, so i think i mean i think these things are really really interesting because they are sort of these um that they're, they're so frightening and so far away that that they are sort of myths of our time they've become myths of our time and we can't go back to black death and plague and actually pick apart what was really going on you know whether people were really well nourished at the time whether whether the consequences of people's fear around those things were part of the problem we don't know but for 1918 we know a lot actually and what we know is not different is a lot different to what we were told so what we know is that um it's what people what we're told is contradictory in the first place so we're told a third of the world caught it and that the um the fatality rate was two to three percent um and that the number of deaths was absolutely enormous <laughs> so the the welcome trust currently claim a hundred million people died which is just, I can't remember that how many people were alive at the time. I think it was 
About, about, about 400 million, probably. Right. So, you know, it's a ridiculous claim. The, those three numbers don't add up. They don't yeah. add up. Um, There's probably more than that, but you're right. The numbers don't add up. No. Right. And if you go back to what people were saying at the time, they had pretty good record keeping in 1918. Yeah. You know, they knew who had died. Yeah, of course. Um, and it was modelers in 1920 who were, um, made the assumption that the problems seen in Europe and America were could be extrapolated to the whole world. Um, and that based on that assumption, and then also assuming that the whole world will have dealt with it in a much worse way, so they'll have a higher mortality, they came up with a figure of 20 million deaths. So why in 1920 were they, you know, exaggerating the problem and coming up with 20 million deaths? And by this, you know, 2020, they're saying it was 100 million. It's because over the course of the last 100 years, people whose careers depend on there having been something scary in 1918, have, have inflated that number fivefold. Now, if you go back to the 1920 modelers, we can now say to them, look, nothing happened in China. Nothing happened in Japan. Your assumptions were wrong. It could not have been 20 million. I'm not saying people didn't die, right? They did die. Yeah. Um, but it was not the way it's, the story is told. And one of the interesting, I mean, there's a several reasons why they might have died more than for a regular flu. And the thing is that this, the 1918 flu continued to circulate, still around, but it stopped killing people. So why did it kill people then? And obviously there were people who were really, really, really malnourished at the time. They'd just been the war, the soldiers were living in unsanitary conditions, marching and marching, at, you know, exhausted and vulnerable to infection. There were people who'd been working in munitions factories back home and exposed to all sorts of chemicals or just living nearby these munitions factories. So they might that might well have played a role. I don't know. But one thing that one story that does seem to have a good evidence base behind it is that there was a, a, a huge amount of um, hope based on the treatment of aspirin. Aspirin was this new drug at the time. They knew it reduced fevers and they thought that this was the way they were going to get through this. And people were chucking down aspirin in really toxic quantities. There were sort of people describing what was going on with with young young people who were sick with the fever um, and that but then being given handfuls of aspirin because they were so frightened that they might die. And then if you look at how people died, there were two ways people die that it's quite the people have described this very well there was people who died because they had a viral infection that turned into a secondary bacterial pneumonia yeah. there were no antibiotics and they died there were other people who got sick very quickly turned blue had this very characteristic heliotrope cyanosis they called it on the lips they ended up with really edematous heavy wet red lungs at post-mortem this is not the same condition that looks much more like aspirin toxicity so the response to 1918 seems to have been a lot of what happened it wasn't just a, a, what we're told it's just so interesting Claire I had no idea about that aspirin toxicity uh, affecting the lungs and causing the so, so the, the, the lungs became inflamed and demitus 
they weren't yeah. taking in the oxygen and that caused the so basically what well, how did you describe cyanosis around the mouth isn't it the red the blueness around yeah. the mouth yeah so yeah. they get yeah which obviously you can get cyanosis with pneumonias as well but this yeah. was characteristic you know they gave it a name it was different looking to what they were used yeah. to seeing I mean, I, I guess I would call that central cyanosis, which, of course, is the most alarming form of, of, of cyanosis. It means yeah. that the oxygen levels in the blood have, have dropped quite dramatically. That is so in, interesting. So many things we can learn from the past. And you know, the, the, the other thing, you know, just going back to the start of this discussion, really, was this idea that, that consensus of medical opinion got things wrong, you know, taking the example of aerosolization for, for over 100 years, well, over 100 years. You know, we're talking, you know, dates, Louis Pasteur, we're probably talking about 1890s and th th those kind of times. And yet, yet you know, in 2020, the, 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 the thinking had not been clarified. It's, uh, yeah. it's quite incredible I mean, the way these myths can be perpetuated. It is, isn't it? And, and it's this whole thing around the institutional aspect of science where people, you know, they sort of have a power base based on the knowledge that, they got into that position with and anybody undermining the knowledge that they built their own little empire on is a threat to them and you know you can see this through scientists history all the way along there's always you know you you have hook and newton and their disputes <laughs> and how that played out politically and and there's that you know max planck's expression of science progresses one funeral at a time and the trouble is that we haven't had funerals in the same way you know, Fauci has been in charge of the NAID in the US for literally the length of people's entire careers. And, and, and so you're not getting the turnaround, you're not getting the new knowledge and the fresh blood and the young thinking coming through ever. And instead, we've got this sort of entrenchment and we've got medical journals and scientific journals who have been influenced by um, money and sort of not rocking the boat and so the you know the whole the whole point of science is to have debate and questions and openness and if you can't have openness if there are things that are off the table you won't find out things that you know you won't get near the truth if you have a culture of openness which they did we've had in the past mm -hmm. you have you know you have wacky ideas floating around that's just what happens so you have people like Mary Curry who we all, you know, praise for her important work in physics, but she also was into seances and things like that. And you have, you know, other other scientists of the time who similarly made amazing breakthroughs, but had sort of funny ideas about the effects of magnetism and hypnosis. And, and you know, because everything was on the table. So you could talk about these things and over time some of the things you were talking about have come out the other way and, and have been disproved, which is fine. As long as your adaptive thinking as the evidence emerges, that should be yeah, fine. Right. But it's I mean, not. I, 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 Isaac Newton spent as much time uh, trying to work out when the Lord was going to return from numbers in Scripture, I believe, as, as he did from uh, <laughs> actually working on physics. But that's not the point. He had a very fertile brain. You know, mm. that, that he was thinking aloud. And as well as that, there's vested interests actually work to maintain the status quo now, I believe, financial vested interests. I mean, Barry Marshall springs to mind in Australia. Um, everyone knows that stomach ulcers are caused by stress and you have to take a, a, an anti-acid tablet every day for the rest of your life, supplied by a pharmaceutical company at significant cost. But take that one a day for the rest of your life and you'll be absolutely fine. When Barry Marshall comes along and says, no, just a minute. Most of these are caused by a bacteria, Helicobacter pylori. Mm -hmm. And you know what? 
I know how to eradicate that. And, yeah. you know, he wasn't welcome with open arms, shall we say. And it was only when he actually infected himself and was able to treat himself that yeah. he demonstrated that this actually worked because he, people did not want the change. And revolutionary ideas, make no mistake, are not allowed. You must no. just have little incremental thoughts. You must not get into trouble. You must make sure it gets published. You must keep the in income coming in. And we don't want any revolutionary ideas that could actually improve human knowledge in this sort of dialectic fashion it's a, yeah, it's a very sad situation it is sad and it is sad because the people who have created that situation obviously feel threatened by new knowledge what's sad is that they feel threatened by it they're not threatened by it they really are not and yet they feel like they are i think well where do you get that weakness from why why are you so weak that you can't actually engage in something something that might be amazing you know you just won't engage it's scientific ludditeism really isn't it you know the, the, this is the way we've done it and we're not going to change and sit, yeah. sit, sit down young man sit down young woman we don't want to hear from you it's uh... yeah. yeah yeah and of course that that actually plays back into that story about the droplets and the aerosols because you've mm. got a situation where in the 1930s they'd got the photography up to a standard that meant they could actually sort of start to observe these things and a lot of work was done by engineer William Wells and his physician wife Mildred on what was really happening in terms of droplets and aerosols and how big and how far and how long they'd stay in the air um, and they did amazing work that was dismissed by the CDC director, Alexander Langmuir at the time, because he was thinking this was a threat to germ theory, you know, the same old yeah. problem. This sounds a bit like my asthma. I'm going to sounds a bit like you. And he stayed. And this, this is 1920s, Claire, from memory. So I think the work was in the 1930s, but it was in it was, wasn't until the 1980s, late 1980s, when Alexander Langmuir re retired. And in his retirement speech, he said, I got it wrong about those two. I you know I, that that actually their evidence was really good and we ought to be looking at that properly. So people started to look at it properly 50 years on. So and, I got it wrong all the time I was in power, all the time I was decision maker, got it wrong. Well, now, I'm retiring, I'm, it. now I'm retiring, uh, now I'm retiring, now I'm retiring, I'll admit it now. Yeah, yeah well, that, that is what happened. And you can see how these, you know, you can see that reflected time and time again with powerful positions, people yeah, in yeah. science. And so he admitted it. And then there was this catastrophic error where people were looking back at the work of these two people to find the number that's of the size of a droplet that would fall to the ground. Yeah. And they misinterpreted the meaning of the word airborne. Because airborne, to us now, anybody says airborne means it, it travels through the air. It's, everybody understands that to be its meaning. But when they were using it in the 30s and 40s, airborne meant infectious material of a size that could be spread through the air so you would use that word airborne to say well it could it's small enough that it could cause an infection rather than it's small enough it, that's the size it is in the air does that make sense i'm not saying it brilliantly i'll try again so as after they did their work generally they focused on tb and tb is interesting because it like measles um, can't spread in the upper airways. There are no receptors. So anything that any aerosol that you breathe in that's going to end up you know, caught in the upper airways will have no impact on you. It's only the aerosols that are small enough that can get deep into the lung that can cause an infection. The microparticulates go deep down. Yeah. yeah. yeah so yeah. these tinier aerosols that could cause an infection, they were describing as airborne. 
meaning they could cause an infection. Whereas, obviously, we misinterpret that now. And so they, the claim became that these teeny tiny aerosols were the ones that were dropping to the ground when, when that wasn't the case at all. It was far, far bigger, the ones that were dropping to the ground. Right. So, so, so very small aerosols, very small particles. It's the same as particles of diesel smoke or wood smoke. Mm-hmm. They, they can go straight into d- down into the lungs and they, they can cause infection because measles, as you say, doesn't affect the upper airways. It's got to be these small particles. So big, if someone's slobbering on you with great big droplets, um, th- th- theoretically, the risk from measles would be less. It wouldn't quite work like that because every time someone's breathing out, there's a whole variety of sizes of droplets. That's right. Um, and, produce. And, so so the people would catch measles by direct contact, but they can also catch it through this airborne. And air, airborne then was used to define, airborne was defined pragmatically. It's what is capable of transmitting infection. Is that is that? Yeah, I mean, it's really weird to us, isn't it? Because the word is so discreet in its meaning now. It's hard to understand it having that other meaning because it just sounds so peculiar. But they, they did use it to mean something completely different to what we mean now. And so this wrong number ended up in the textbooks, ended up in all the public health guidelines. And, and you know, people were still like absolute about it, even when like physicists today are saying this is rubbish you're just talking rubbish that's not what happens these things do not drop to the ground it's just you know and when you i try in the book to describe it by making everything a thousand times bigger and talking about giants and so you've got these giants in the air and the claim is that they're breathing out grapefruit sized things and lentil sized things and that the in reality the grapefruit sized things are going to drop to the ground in about the uh, radius of their height. So they're a mile high and within a mile, your grapefruits are on the ground. And they're saying that that's gonna happen to these tiny lentil size aerosols, that they're all just gonna come thundering down to the ground. And when you can sort of picture that, you see how ridiculous that is, a mile. It's just ludicrous conflation. Mm. But it's like people find it very hard to picture these tiny things. And so you can't, can't kind of see how ridiculous the concept is because it's all just too small to think about. Yeah, but that's what scientists are supposed to do. They're supposed to analyze the nature of reality and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and the practical applications in terms of the pandemic for that misunderstanding, Claire. Can you just sort of spell that out for me a bit? Well, yeah, so if you think back to the kinds of restrictions that were in place, we had one-way systems and perspex screens. And you know, the, the perspex screens were counterproductive because if you've got aerosols in the air, the perspex screens cause them to collect so that you're getting a higher dosage than you otherwise would do if you had proper airflow through a room. So, you know, they were completely counterproductive. And you had all this social distancing that just caused horrible harm in terms of people being allowed to be with other people when they needed to be. Um, And then, of course, the masks come into play, right? So if you believe spread is through droplets that are being spat out of somebody's mouth as they talk, then a mask is going to help. It's going to help, you know, I, I accept that. But if, if you realize that's not how it spreads, then you've got two problems. One problem is the, the gaps all around the cloth mask, where that's actually where the air is going in and out, so it has no impact at all. But the other problem is anything that you are spitting onto the mask, you're then breathing over it. So you're going to aerosolize what's on the mask. And if you look at the data in the real world of what happened when masking mandates were brought in, Every single time there was a difference between one region and another or one country and another, it was always the masked one that was doing worse. Interesting. Yeah. 
one thing I'm just a bit confused about. Um, some someone who was say ten fifteen percent was susceptible to the Wuhan wave. Would it be a different ten to fifteen percent that was susceptible to the Alpha wave, and a different ten to fifteen percent that could be susceptible to the Delta wave and the Omicron wave? Yeah, no, that's a really important question, and the answer is essentially yes. It's it's sort of working its way through the population, which is what influenza would have done as well. So you'd see with influenza from way back 1930s, you could measure antibodies and you would see how a, a, you know, a fraction each year would be accumulating these antibodies. And then you'd have one particular influenza variant that might skip a year and then it comes back again. And so after like 10 to 11 years, it's worked its way through the population. And then you get this new strain of influenza and everybody goes into a bit of a panic again and says, mm -hmm. oh, nobody's seen this one, it's gonna be worse. And then it does its thing and it works its way through as before. Um, so, so yes, it is working its way through. And you can see that with the antibody results and how they just keep increasing over time. You know, we haven't had periods where they've fallen away. The antibodies just increase. And once you've got antibodies from an infection, if you were unvaccinated, you're sort of pretty much OK. So there was, for Delta, the previously infected were very well protected. They were very well protected from hospitalizations and deaths. But that didn't really happen if you'd had a previous infection. And they were almost completely protected from infection. So 99% of the infections were first timers. And there was a, like, a trickle of people who'd been positive before, some of whom may have been asymptomatic positives. You know, well, was that ever really a positive? I don't think so. But with Omicron, that changed a little bit, but it was still 95% were first timers. So, they, you know, there were some people who were becoming infected again. Um, but the people who seem to have had the most infections in with Omicron have been people who've had the most doses of the vaccine. So, you know, that Cleveland study of healthcare workers, where the more doses they had, the higher the infection rate. And when they went and checked and said, well, is this a testing bias? No, it wasn't. Is this a bias because the people who stopped being injected because they've had it? It wasn't that either. It was literally the vaccine was making people's immune systems respond worse and they were getting infected more often. And the immunologists do tell us that this is a well-recognised phenomenon, that the vaccine can stimulate the suppressor cells and uh, stimulate particular types of antibodies which uh, generate immune tolerance. It's a well-recognized yeah. well recognized. I mean, it's a big, phenomenon. it's a potentially big problem because you've got the immune systems that have switched from being on attack mode. So even you think your immune system's got two jobs, really, it has to recognize you as self and ignore it, and it has to recognize foreign, but it has to make an exception for food because there's food is in you and it's foreign and you don't want to have an allergic response to it. So it has a way of saying, well, let's switch our immune response to say, yeah, it's foreign, but foreign and we can ignore it. And that's what's been happening with people who've been injected multiple times is their body is saying, well, this is foreign, but we can ignore it. And we don't want to be ignoring this. It's, you know, it's a foreign virus. You shouldn't be ignoring it. Um, yeah. And then there's the additional problem, of course, that of, of that sort of original antigenic sin story where once your immune system's been trained on one particular way of approaching a, a pathogen, so one particular, you know, if it's trained up to say, it looks like this, and in the case of the vaccine, this little bit looks like this, then every time it sees that virus, it's going to approach it with the weapons it learnt in the first lesson. And so everybody who got vaccinated were taught the same lesson 
so the viral the virus has then got immense sort of um pressure to evolve to avoid that technique specifically because then it's adapted and can and can run through that population which is what it's done subsequently um whereas you know if you allow natural immunity to develop then it's a broad range of immunity in an individual and even broader across the population and it doesn't have so much of a chance of sort of finding that niche and going for it yeah so so the the idea that specific vaccination is 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 a, is a kind of an evolutionary driver really Whereas if you've got natural immunity, you're going to produce uh, an immune response, whether it's through T cells or antibodies to, oh, I don't know, at least 20 different uh, proteins, 20 different epitopes from the virus. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's poly polyclonal, That's right. polyclonal yeah. response. So the, the high numbers of antibodies in the community that were cited, people like the Office for National Statistics, were, were well up into the sort of high 90s of percents. Is is that credible given the, the 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 accumulation of repeated infections that people were, or pe the, the 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 virus that people were exposed to, or is there something that's slightly inconsistent with those very high levels of antibodies? So there's something about it that I just don't quite buy. So I think they were doing a really good measure through Wuhan Alpha and Delta wave. You know, if and you look at the number of people who were said to, like they were looking at blood donors but extrapolating to the population and if you say well if that proportion of the population have now had covid it actually tallied very well with the number of symptomatic people who had tested positive so you've got a measure you know if you've got two measures of the same thing then they're coming out the same that's pretty compelling but and it was also you know similar fraction to the proportion who were susceptible in the household so everything was aligned it was all making sense but then with Omicron, it, they all fall apart and they, they're not aligned anymore. And what what one thing that sort of came out during the course of the Delta wave was evidence from the Moderna child. It was just one study where they showed that people who had been vaccinated and then had an infection didn't produce N antibodies, these sort of post-infection antibodies, at the same rate as the unvaccinated. It was sort of half, less than half. So that would mean that you you know you could have the same number of infections in a vaccinated community but with an antibody test it would look like there'd only been half those number of infections and i just wonder if the public health people decided to fiddle with their testing and say well we've got to account for this let's have a much much lower threshold of how much antibody needs to be there for us to say it's real because it was around that time that it all seemed to go a bit haywire and when you the, the sort of one other way I've had a sort of finger in the air is this correct is just to ask people so I've done you know polls on Twitter and just said have you had it <laughs> it's a very you know are you vaccinated aren't you vaccinated have you had it just simple simple questions and I've done that more than once over time and it's very consistent and and it changes over time in a predictable fashion but the answers to those surveys fit with 10 percent at time not with everybody's had it now it's over and it's clearly not over. You know, at the moment, Finland has got a higher hospitalisation rate than they've ever had. Right. So, you know, it's coming back. It's going to surge in December here like it does every year. It's not over because it hasn't worked its way through the population. And if you speak to people, you'll know people who haven't had it yet because not everybody has. Quite a few people have had it multiple times, but there's still plenty of people who haven't had it yet. And the, there seems to be a pattern that the older you are, the less likely you are to have had it. And I think that makes perfect sense because our immune systems educate themselves through the course of our lives.
Now, of course, there comes a point in life when you're quite close to death, when your immune systems fail and you're going to be more susceptible to everything and anything. But before that happens, when you're still, you know, healthy, then you've got a very educated immune system at 80 compared to at 20 years old. And if you look at the antibody levels across those age groups, throughout the whole period, there's always been every 10 years older, there were fewer people had developed antibodies. There'd been fewer infections for every 10 year gap. And so you can make an argument about shielding and you can make an argument about young people having a whale of a time, but you shouldn't be seeing a gap between 20 year olds and 30 year olds and 30 year olds and 40 year olds. You know, that, that, and that, that's because of prior um, education of the immune system, which it's means cross immunity, basically, isn't exactly. It? Yeah, exactly. And so it makes sense. That it, but it does mean that the the, purport, the the age groups who are susceptible going forward are not necessarily the ones that were at the beginning as it's working its yeah. way through. Because there's these other coronaviruses that are around. There's other viruses which have got probably similar shape proteins on the surface mm. these these epitopes there's going to be cross immunity i mean do you so, remember so, so, that study early on with measles and the mmr immunity that was a fascinating study where they oh, tell, looked, tell us please so they looked at this is like 2020 data and they'd looked at um how sick people had become and and who'd got infected and found that people who had antibodies two months were protected and people who had antibodies two months from their mmr vaccine had the best protection of all and it was really a very effective vaccine and it was a vaccine that we had tons of safety data on and yet having shown how protective it was they didn't want to do anything with it because we had to have novel products being given to everybody for some reason um so you know that that was just ridiculous how because it was such a clear-cut improvement in in protection and that just goes to show also that there's this sort of belief some people seem to have that our immune systems have got a clipboard with the tick boxes for each disease you've had you've had that one have that one and it's not like that you know what happens is the pathogens chopped up into multitude of tiny tiny fragments and all your body is doing is saying that's not me I, that is that is foreign that bit there but that bit there being foreign is just simply the shape it's in and the shape of a tiny fragment of mumps can look very similar to the shape of a tiny fragment of a SARS-CoV-2. Yeah, we have this idea that, you know, I talk to my students that, that, that immunity is specific. You make a specific immune response against a, a specific organism. But that's simplistic because, as you say, organisms are not, the immune system doesn't say, oh, well, that's the virus, that, that's the measles, that's the mumps, that's the rubella. It's actually looking at the molecules on the surface of that, mm -hmm. the subcomponents of that. And, and, and so made... I suppose the counter is that, if you have had the no, if you didn't have protection from the other things you've seen previously, then you have an infection, and then it's you're able to demonstrate that you've had the full immune response to the whole thing, and you can say yes, you've got you've had that infection. We can show it in your immune response. So I guess it's a bit of both. On the one hand, you don't need to have seen that exact thing before to have some protection, but on the other hand, having seen that thing, you can measure it using things in the immune system. And yet we were told this is a novel virus, to this we have no immunity, we have no resistance. This is something yeah. completely new, Yeah. which looking back is just, just ludicrous. Yeah, and I think would be ludicrous actually for any pathogen. Because, yes. nothing, you know, because your body recognises it as foreign, not recognises it because it's seen it before. Yeah, but all, all life on the planet is basically the same. There's the same genetic code, the same amino acids making up proteins. 
and and that there is similarity between the shapes. I mean, we go back to Edward Jenner, who inoculated this poor boy James Phipps with uh, cowpox. And uh, I won't, don't, don't want to go into that story now in detail. I know we've got views on that, but but the idea is that the, the cowpox gave cross immunity to the smallpox. It's a different but similar. Yeah, I think that's a useful concept to, to explain that situation. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was looking at you with some anxiety there because I know that's a separate, <laughs> a separate topic. So I, I, I want to finish shortly, Claire, because we've done so much. But but can you just clarify that the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine was that providing protection against COVID? Yeah, it was. It was. So it's the mumps component of it, we believe. Yeah, and it maybe it only did it for the Wuhan wave. You know, I, no, nobody seemed to have looked at it subsequently. But during the Wuhan wave, people who had mumps antibodies had very, very good protection. Um, but you know, there's all sorts of aspects to when we were talking about that sort of 10% are susceptible story. I think there are lots of different ways in which we're protected from infection. And we don't know which one of them is failing, you know, so we're talking about antibodies as if that was the issue, but yeah. it may not have been that. So, for example, our respiratory tracts aligned with a mucus layer. In fact, it's layers of different types of mucus that they're lined by. And so if you if you are next to someone who's infected or, you know, you've breathed it through the air, you've got a huge dose of virus in your air and your lung. That doesn't mean that you are going to be infected. Because if your mucus layer does its job properly, the virus cannot get into a cell. It just can't do that. So something else has to go wrong to allow the virus to penetrate because that very last layer of mucus that sits right next to the cell is so thick that the, like it, the, the, a single virus is, is too big to get through it. And the layers that are sort of more runny and above that layer are constantly being swept away up and then we swallow it and it lands in the acid and it can't cause an infection. So something goes wrong with that mucus layer in some people and we don't understand what it is. And if we could understand that, then that might teach us all sorts of other things around how the virus spreads and what you could do about it. So what there's one interesting theory around how the virus can get through the mucosa, mucus layer, which is that it hitchhikes on the back of a bacteria. And that's very, very interesting because um, going back to Charles Chapin's time, they believed that influenza was spread by a bacteria called nowadays Haemophilus influenzae, which was not the cause of influenza, but they could find it in, in people who had influenza. No, not every time, but they could find it as if there was a relationship there between those organisms. And you see that, you know, with influenza subsequently, that a lot of the problem with viral influenza is actually the bacteria that are hanging around at the same time. And you get these secondary bacterial infections. And that's why antibiotics have, you know, been so important. And that's also why we have to be very concerned about how viral infection was treated during the course of 2020 onwards, because in the past, if you were sick in the community, you would see your doctor and they would greet you warmly with a smile. And then they would say, well, you know, have a listen to your chest. You sound like you've got pneumonia. I'm going to give you antibiotics. I don't know what's caused your pneumonia, but this is the protocol. You get antibiotics and the antibiotics these people have been given would have prevented these secondary bacterial infections. But they also had antiviral and anti-inflammatory properties, 
which would have benefited these people. And then on top of all of that, you've got the psychological benefit of being looked after and not being terrified. You know, when people are terrified, their cortisol levels go up and everything goes south. So instead, we terrified people, told them, well, you know, if you really must come to hospital, wait till you're blue in the face and then we might look after you. And so, of course, all of that response is going to have had an impact on mortality from respiratory disease in that period because we weren't treating it normally. We were, you know, there were reasons why we gave antibiotics for community pneumonia, even though some of those are viral in the past too. It's just the antithesis of everything I've learnt and taught over the past 45 years in clinical work and educational work. This is exactly how we don't treat patients. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I mean, you know, every first year student, look, listen, feel, tap. It's how you examine a patient. And, and if you can't, if you, you can, can you look on the phone maybe? You certainly can't listen, you certainly can't feel, you can't palpate and you can't percuss them. You know, the, the fundamental basics of any medical examination become impossible. I agree. And that there is something about in, when you're in the room with the patient, face to face with them, you get to a feel for how they're breathing, how they're holding themselves, how concerned they are. You know, and, and that's not all from the words they're using. And, and the idea that they can give you that over a phone call when the distance from a phone call creates a barrier that that you, you don't have the trust there. It's not just the barrier in communication, the trust barrier gets broken as well. And so people don't get to share in the same way information that the doctor needs to know. Yeah, when I, when I retired from full-time education, I went back to being a junior staff nurse on A&E. It was great. There was no emails and no meetings. But, you know, I'd, I'd, by that time, I got a lifetime of, of experience. And some patients, you go into the cubicle and you think, I'm not happy with them at all. Might, yeah. might not quite know why. Yeah. And um, I, I would go to the consultant and say, you know, I'm not happy with Mr. Smith there. And the consultants, to be fair, said, well, tell you what, John, they might not have said this, but this is what happened. If you're not happy, I'm not happy. And they would go and look at them. Yeah. And nine times out of 10, there would be an unrecognized pneumonia, an unrecognized sepsis developing, an unrecognized stroke. You know, there, there was something that you just get from, from your patient. And the, the, the idea that you just sweep all that aside. Yeah. It, it, it reduces medicine to an artificial intelligence, no, not, not a human exactly interaction. Exactly that. I mean, that is the path that we've been traveling down more yeah. and more rapidly, but prior to COVID as well as recently, is this idea that doctor's decision-making is algorithmic and protocol-driven. And once you're there, you don't need doctors anymore. So doctors are doing themselves out of a job by pretending that these interpersonal skills, that the trust and that these these signals, this pattern recognition, this sort of the kind of thing that you can't quite put words to, to feed into an algorithm, don't count for anything. And they do. And, and moreover, the doctors have a very, very important role as being ethical and being able to look at the patient in front of them at the time and be an advocate for that patient's needs at that time, which will not necessarily fit with any algorithm or protocol because everybody's unique and, you know, people need to be treated as unique because otherwise they just get mashed through a machine. And as well as that, you mentioned that this immense placebo effect, which we must never underestimate, that when you're with your doctor who you trust, mm -hmm. just the way they put the stethoscope on your chest, it just, it just gives that confidence. You, you, you can feel that their competence. 
I, I often used to be the patient for uh, for things like trauma courses, and you know the the, the uh, sometimes you get junior doctors holding your your head. You know mm-hmm. when I was pretending to be the patient, and 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 one day I was there was a consultant orthopedic surgeon doing the the, the, the teaching and the way he held my head I could just tell this guy was a superb clinician just the way he was touching me and it was it was you think oh this is fine I'm in good hands here literally yeah literally (laughs) but the the massive you know and the doctor will just look at you and and oh yes oh yes oh yes that looks all right and you know if, if it's someone you trust that the massive positive placebo effect from that and of course, what we got through the pandemic was a massive nocebo effect as well. Yeah, well, the doctors are frightened of seeing you. Yeah. How well am I if they won't even see me because I'm yeah. so deadly sick? Therefore, I'm probably going to die. Yeah. And, and, and that, that can become the, 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 this idea that you believe you will makes you will. And it's true. It's yeah. True. We also had the additional problem of people treating people as numbers. And, you know, everybody got very obsessed with the pulse oximeters on the end of the finger, which I think have a role to play. And I think have been actually very important in hospital care, but we've never actually tried using them in the community for chest infections to know what normal looks like. We don't know what normal looks like. And we started to say, well, if it's dipping to 85 or below 90, you need to come in. And I'm not sure that that's right. I'm not sure that that's right. It might've been, but we don't have that control group to say, actually, when people have chest infections and when they're having coughing fits, it will dip mm-hmm. and it will come back up. And as long as it's coming back up, you don't need to be in hospital. Yeah, so we, we slavishly follow British Thoracic Society guidelines on that. And uh, they need to be, well, basically all this stuff needs to go through the mind of a clinician, doesn't it? But, mm. but, but you're right, we need to collect data on this and, and, and work out what is normal. Yeah, because yeah. Because very often we don't know the difference between physiology and pathology sometimes no, the line right. is blurred. and you know we had that sort of expression of well they have got they've got happy hypoxia do you remember that term yeah happy? yeah 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 and you think well if they're that yeah. happy why are you treating the hypoxia and they'll say well, because they might crash at any time it's all gonna be a disaster and this is what this illness looked like it's not like any other pneumonia you've ever seen before and maybe they were right maybe they were right but i'm just i think there's room for a little bit of doubt there that that was the best way to go about things because once you've told somebody that thing on your finger tells you that you're dying and you need to come into hospital, then you are sort of setting them up for failure. Yeah, you're setting up for the nocebo effect potentially. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I wanna, I'm going to wrap this up shortly, Claire, but th- th- this mumps, at the start of the pandemic, there could have been massive efficacy in isolating the mumps component of the MMR, giving that to people, and that would have generated significant levels of protection as far as we understand against uh, against covid is that is am i overstating the case i don't think you're overstating the case and i think that that you know that definitely looked like a promising route to have tried as a vaccine in a you know in a situation where they, we had evidence of that vaccine from you know from before yeah and of and course might... so the, 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 the 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 mumps vaccine were giving a precise known dose of antigen we're not giving an rna instruction we're not yep. giving an adenovirus vector instruction we are actually giving the antigen in a totally controlled precise measure so we know exactly what we're getting we give the right dose of the right drug to the right patient to the right route at the right time and um it's a pity that wasn't 
perhaps considered more. Yeah, I mean, I think there's always been this thing where uh, government seems to like to throw its money behind innovation. They can say, well, we're, you know, we're doing something new and it means that not only are we solving a problem, but we're also potentially developing, investing in a way that could solve other problems in the future. And I think that, that there are occasions when that thinking is just ridiculous and detrimental because you're, you know, you, there are times when actually it, it pays to stick with what we know. And this was exactly what happened in the swine flu pandemic back in 2009, where the decision was, that we needed a vaccine and that the vaccine could not be a conventional influenza vaccine grown in eggs. It had to be something novel. And it turned out that the conventional influenza vaccine grown in eggs was ready at exactly the same time as these novel things. So the claim was it would take too long, but it was ready at the same time. But they went with something novel and the consequence was you know, about 100 teenagers in this country got narcolepsy, which meant the sleep centres of their brain were permanently damaged and they could fall asleep or go into a sleep-like paralysis while conscious at any time for the rest of their lives. So hugely disabling. Um, and it probably didn't actually have any benefit for swine flu either. The, the Swedish um, public health um, official, I can't remember exactly what her role was, but she reckoned that it saved six lives in Sweden as, as a max. You know, well, you know, how ridiculous. You've caused all this harm and you didn't really make a difference. And the arrogance of not learning from that mistake is mm, just stunning. Indeed. Yeah. And uh, I, I like the saying, if it ain't bust, don't fix it. Yeah. Yeah. Claire, um, we, we have more to do. Um, if you would like to, the, the next the next questions would be, which we're not going to do now, but um, uh, COVID would likely kill me, question mark. Death certificates are never wrong, question mark. A new variant spells doom, question mark. Um, if you test positive, you have COVID. Yeah, there's a lot to say on that. Question mark. One in three people with COVID spread it while asymptomatic. Question mark. Mm -hmm. uh, lockdowns save lives. Question mark. Lockdowns are not harmful. Question mark. Masks reduce transmission. I think we've already given a spoiler on that one. But, uh, children are resilient and uh, zero COVID is achievable. So th that, that's still to come. In, in the meantime, do get this. You won't be able to put it down. Um, it's just makes sense of everything and uh, as indeed as this discussion helped massively Claire so thank you thank you so much we've been going for an hour and 23 minutes so you've done, done very well um, and if you'd like to come back to discuss those future questions we will be absolutely delighted absolutely, for now Thanks, for now Dr Claire Craig pathologist doctor researcher author and campaigner for the good of humanity thank you very much thank you John